Hello and welcome to Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by Fangraphs and by our Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, talking with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. You didn't mention that this is episode 1030. Ah, crap. And this is episode (laughs) 1000. I have it written down right here on my laptop. This is episode 1030. How will people know? Otherwise, they'd be wondering which episode they were listening to. Yeah, now they're going to know because we've beaten this into the ground. <laughs> 1,030, 1030. This is a team preview episode. We will be talking a little later with Susan Slusser about the Oakland Athletics and with Joshua Housem about the Toronto Blue Jays, who look like a better team than the Athletics. However, mm-hmm. with our team preview series moving on, we are narrowing the gap yeah. between teams more and more. So pretty soon... We're going to uh, to get to the, the middle, and then we're not going to say which team is projected better than the other one. Also, mm-hmm. the projections have shifted since the schedule was <laughs> yes. set. One thing that's happened, uh, we're recording this intro post-athletics interview, and since the athletics interview, Sonny Gray has been shut down. Mm-hmm. I've seen the headlines saying Sonny Gray shut down for a few weeks, and one, most recently, I saw Sonny Gray shut down indefinitely, which sounds much worse. He has a, a strained lat. I think the understanding is that he's going to be uh, back around the end of April. However, I know that just from Mariner's experience, strained lats can cost near full seasons. So we have Sunny Gray developments, which are bad for Oakland Athletics developments. Yeah, what Susan is going to say about Sunny Gray was not particularly positive as it is, but <laughs> <laughs> now the news is even more negative. Yeah. So, you know, we'll get into talking about the upside of the rotation and how they do have more than five seeming big league caliber starters. However, Sonny Gray was supposed to be the big one either for the team being competitive or for the team being not competitive, but Gray being competitive so that then he can be traded. And so this is just a bummer of a way to start. Not quite, I guess the Cardinals losing Alex Reyes, but spring training is a disaster uh, mm-hmm. across the board. And the best you can ever hope for is that spring training is the most boring six weeks they've ever experienced because the alternative is that something bad happens. Right. By the way, an even bigger bummer, Bill Hands came up recently on this podcast Mm -hmm. during one of your stat segments, and I mentioned that he had been the subject of a cold call on Effectively Wild episode 964, and sadly, he died this week, so soon after Ned Garver, the first cold call in this podcast history. Bill Hens was 76, so sad timing for these to come so close together, and it makes me either want to call more retired players who are still around before it's too late, or never call a retired player again, because maybe bad things happen yeah. when we do that. So Yeah, I certainly don't want to make light of this situation, but mm-hmm. I think that maybe stop answering your calls. Yeah, so episode 964, if you want to go back and listen to Bill Hands, we called him about the fact that he had allowed the most home runs ever by a pitcher, two pitchers, in 1968, no less, and He was a very good sport about two strangers calling him to discuss an embarrassing stat. So (laughs) I will link to that episode so you can go back and listen to that. And without any further banter, we will get to the previews. Now you're just a shell of your former you. That stranger in the All 
right, we are back now to talk about the Blue Jays with the co-editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus Toronto and the co-host of Baseball Prospectus Toronto's podcast, Artificial Turf Wars, is Joshua Housem. Hey, Josh. Hey. So, Jose Batista hit a dramatic WBC home run yesterday. He is still a Blue Jay. And that was kind of the central question coming into the Blue Jays offseason for much of the Blue Jays offseason. Would they keep him? Would they keep Encarnacion? What would it cost them? How long would they be around? Are you satisfied or dissatisfied with how that played out? Well, in terms of Bautista, I don't think it's hard to be, I think it'd be very hard to be happier if they got him on a one-year deal for 18 million bucks. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. fantastic. With Encarnacion, I mean, the fact that they offered him more money than he ended up signing for and he went to the team that knocked him out, obviously that doesn't make any Jays fan particularly happy. But I think that Bautista, with the year he could have, combined with the year Morales could have, they could equal the production those two guys gave the Blue Jays last year because Bautista just wasn't that great. The Blue Jays sort of hustled, I guess you could say, when they signed Kendrys Morales. They gave him, what, the three years, $33 million, and it it seemed odd, just like almost any multi-year free agency signing near the start of the offseason feels a little odd. Even when that happened and then the front office would talk about how, oh, we still have room for Edwin Encarnacion, it seemed like the writing was sort of on the wall. And then, of course, later in the offseason, it turned out that the market for players like Morales kind of cratered and you had these these pretty good but not elite hitters signing for small one-year contract. So now that you have the benefit or, I guess, detriment of hindsight, how are you feeling about Kendra's Morales as sort of the regular DH? Of all the guys that did end up signing for those cheap contracts, I would still prefer Morales to those guys, but just the issue of having him on a three-year deal, like you said, way too early. It just didn't make sense to do that then. I'm not happy about that. I'm not happy about how they're locked into this guy for his age 34 through 36 years and he can't play defense. But in terms of the guy to DH, I think he was the best non-Edwin bat that was reasonable for the Blue Jays. I mean, they weren't going to get Cespedes or something like that. So we've seen the Blue Jays sort of bash their way to the playoffs. That's (laughs) kind of an exaggeration. They had a good pitching staff last year too, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But they've had overpowering offenses and having lost Encarnacion and Saunders and with Batista being older and somewhat uncertain, do you still think of this as being one of the best offensive teams in baseball or is it in a lower tier now? I think you have to drop it down a little bit. I mean, not not only with the guys you just mentioned, you've got Russell Martin who struck out at a career high rate last year. You know, Donaldson eventually is going to slow down to Lewiski going to slow down. I still think they're a very good offense, but I, I don't think they're the team that you expect to just slug their way to the title anymore. Related to that, so I have assembled here 10, the I think the 10 most regular for the season ahead, Blue Jays position players, counting Kendrick Morales, even though he will not play a position. And what I've done is I've put in all their names on this little notepad, and I have inserted their peak, their best ever single season war from Fangraphs. So I'm just going to read down the list here, and then you'll know where the question is going. Josh Donaldson. 8.7. Jose Batista, 8.1. These are very good. Troy Tulowitzki, 5.6. I actually thought he would be higher. Russell Martin, 5.5. Steve Pierce, 4.9. Melvin Upton Jr., 4.8. Kevin Pillar, 4.3. Kendris Morales, 3.7. Devin Travis, 2.5. He's always hurt. Justin Smoke, 0.7. Multi-year contract extension. <laughs> yeah, the Blue Jays <laughs> reportedly, at least as of a few weeks ago, want to see Justin Smoke be not just a platoon guy, but the everyday player at first base. I don't know. I guess, in short, I can see a little bit of reason for optimism. His, uh, his stat cast numbers from last season were surprisingly good, even though his 
baseball numbers from last season were unsurprisingly bad. What is what is the deal with Justin Smoke? Can you get any read on why the front office seems to at least not hate him? Well, I, I think you hit on part of it there. He Statcast numbers and batted ball numbers. He's always done really, really well at those. He hits the ball hard, and when he hits it, it's with a high frequency hard. I mean, he just doesn't hit the ball. <laughs> he swings and misses <laughs> like crazy. You know, it's kind of important for a hitter. And they talk about his first base defense. Now, the metrics don't like it, but. I think it's more his ability to pick balls out of the dirt, which from watching the team, he is very good at. But honestly, I think that the Blue Jays don't want him playing first base every day. They want it to be Steve Pierce. Okay. You were tweeting earlier this week about John Gibbons and his history with platooning. Can you catch us up on that? (laughs) So I don't know. Admittedly, I don't remember what he was like with this his first time around with the Jays because that was 10 years ago. But especially late last year into what's now going to be happening this year, he seems to not really pay attention to splits numbers. He wants to use Ezekiel Carrera and Melvin Upton Jr. as platoon in left field. Well, Ezekiel Carrera cannot hit right-handed pitching, despite the fact that he bats left-handed. And the same thing last year, he would only use Brett Cecil against lefties, even though he was just fine against righties, yet he would use Jason Grilly against lefties all the time because he was his setup guy. He just, he gets into these role things and doesn't really pay attention to the fact that these guys aren't good in the roles. Uh, Marcus Stroman, uh, let's see, this is from a few weeks ago. Jason Stark had a, a tweet go out. And uh, Marcus Stroman on the Blue Jays, quote, I think we've got the best rotation in baseball. Now, it's not unusual for a player to be very excited about his teammates. Everybody in the major leagues is fantastic. And actually, last year, uh, using a war based on ERA, the Blue Jays did have the best rotation in the American League. And they were behind only the Cubs, who were, well, basically amazing. And the the Cubs have maybe gotten a little bit weaker. The Blue Jays have only lost R.A. Dickey and I guess you could say Drew Hutchison from last season. So you're returning Stroman, you're returning Aaron Sanchez, Jay Hatt, Marco Estrada, Francisco Liriano, and then from there we don't... I don't even know who to identify as a sixth starter because I'm not convinced such a person exists. But how do you feel about this Blue Jays starting rotation in light of how Marcus Stroman described it? Well, I, I think if you're just talking about the five, because like you said, there is no six right now, which you know, with this rotation could be a problem. But I think the five are right up there with the best in the game. Obviously, Boston, they've got the, you know, they picked up Chris Sale and they have the Cy Young winner, Porcello and Price, who could be coming back. But I actually think the Jays stack up maybe not quite as good, but right there with them and right there with Cleveland. I mean, I think it's time to believe in Marco Estrada now. You know, two years in a row he's been doing this. And Jay Happ, you know, he's not the guy that you expect. I don't think he's going to, you know, screw wins, but he's not thinking he's going to win 20 games again. But, you know, he has the biggest variance between the vertical movement of his four-seam and two-seam fastballs, which lets him get outs with stuff that looks not that great. And Liriano... If he's what he was with the 2013 to 2015 in Pittsburgh, which he sort of was with the Jays, that's a really good one to five. And I didn't even mention Sanchez. <laughs> <laughs> sort of maybe one of the most exciting of the group. So it, I guess I'll just do a follow up here on Sanchez because coming into last season, the Blue Jays obviously wanted to have Sanchez start. And many of us of the statistical community were more than a little bit skeptical that he'd be able to find that mechanical consistency, which is always the problem, and throw strikes. And Aaron Sanchez actually learned, he didn't learn how to throw Bartolo Colon strikes, but he actually found the strike zone. And maybe this is too easy of a question, but do you feel good about Sanchez's chances to repeat? Or did you see something in the way that he kind of wore down a little bit last year that you think that maybe the strikes are going to go away to a certain extent? Well, I don't know that actually really wore down that much. I mean, in his last start of the regular season, he dominated the best offense in the game in the Red Sox. So he got hit a bit by Texas, but they seemed to hit him all season. 
the issue I would worry about with Sanchez more than him losing some mechanical adjustments or anything that he made last year is just the fact that he blew past any projection for how much he would throw last year. So there could be some physical regression, you know, negative regression, obviously, as opposed to just him continuing to progress as fans seem to hope. If the Blue Jays don't do anything else when they have this current core together, everyone was thrilled. Of course, they made it back to the playoffs, and that was great, and it had been too long, and the fan base was energized. But if that's it, if they don't make it this year, and if this team kind of breaks apart, do you think that that will be considered a disappointment? Will people feel like these teams underachieved, or that just by breaking the drought they did something significant. I think the answer to that now is different than it was last year. I think if they had not gotten back to the ALCS, people would have been happy that they just made the postseason. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they've gotten there two years in a row and both times been knocked out by teams that really they felt they should have beaten, if this team doesn't get to the top and they just have to get rid of Donaldson, get rid of Bautista, Tulowitzki, et cetera, I think fans will feel like it was a missed opportunity as opposed to being happy about it. With regard to potential missed opportunities, well, so I'm, I pulled up Roberto Osuna's page and here, right here on something, a clip that's called Rotowire News, I'll quote, Osuna spent the winter working to add velocity to his fastball, Paul Hagen of MLB.com reports. That's a nice goal, I guess. I didn't realize it was just that easy. But in any case, Roberto Osuna, he's just shockingly, he's still 22 years old in one month and three days, if we want to be very specific. And he has been a phenomenal closer. He's been critical for the Blue Jays bullpen, sort of exceeding maybe expectations the last couple of years. Very vital for the team to get as deep as it has. Osuna, of course, throws at least three pretty good pitches. He's got his fastball slider changeup uh, mixed in a cutter a little bit last year. Good velocity throw strikes, does everything right in one inning stints. And as we've seen with players like Haraldus Chapman or even Neftali Feliz now, you get these these players who are young, very good closers, and they basically remain closers. The Rangers tried to start Feliz and it went horribly and then they quit, kind of knocked his career off track. I would assume at this point, even though Osuna is still young, that because he's been such a good closer, he's going to remain a closer. It's just too hard to move a player like this. So with that in mind, are you satisfied with how Osuna is now, or are you going to feel like this was a missed opportunity to see what he could be as a starter? Well, I I think that if they continue to have the kind of rotation depth that they have this year, and they have a couple guys that could come up, it'll soften the blow. But I mean, when you see a guy who's got that kind of stuff and he's got the depth in his repertoire that you talked about, it's kind of hard not to wish that he could have been a starter. I mean, you can find guys to be good relief pitchers. It's hard to find guys with that kind of stuff. And he can carry it deep into games where they saw it in the minors. So it's a bit of a wasted opportunity, I think. I know you just spoke to Russell Martin for an article about catching and communicating with pitchers. You know, it was a a big part of why he was acquired was his framing, that sort of thing. And I think his framing ratings are still strong and maybe everyone's have been compressed a little bit as Jeff has written as the worst framers have gotten less bad. But do you think that what he is capable of now offensively, because of course he was coming off a really great offensive season when he was signed, do you feel like there's any buy high buyer's remorse or do you think that just the defense is valuable enough and whatever leadership qualities he brings are valuable enough that he is well worth the money even if he hits more like a catcher (laughs) well i think he still hits more like a good hitting catcher as opposed to just hitting like a good player but i do think that it is worth it i mean maybe not 20 million a year but close enough 
I mean, it, it just if you talk to the pitchers as well, I mean, what he does for them, they just I mean, we talk about it's hard to quantify emotion and comfort level, but they really do feel it with him. And especially with guys like Stroman and Sanchez, I think that his defensive value really shows up because Martin's strength when it comes to framing or stealing pitches or receiving is on the low strike. And both of those guys are heavy sinker ball pitchers. So he's able to help them. And then we talked about Sanchez staying in the strike zone. I think just throwing to Martin all year was a big part of that. You know, it doesn't help a guy like Estrada who throws up in the zone as much, but with Martin and the young pitchers, I think he's worth the money. A question I get pretty often in my Fangraphs chats, because they're populated almost exclusively by Blue Jays fans, is that they want to know <laughs> what's going on in, in left field and if and when Dalton Pompey will ever get a chance. Pompey, of course, right now is playing, well, not right now, but he's playing for Team Canada, which is a good team to play for, although they just got clobbered, I guess. Anyway, Dalton Pompey, still young, decent pedigree. Not clearly a starter this year, even though there is an opening for a good player to emerge. What is the the career status, I, I suppose, of Dalton Pompey, and what what is something that you think that he could or will or needs to improve in order to really get his footing, feet set? Feet set would be the expression. <laughs> well, I think the biggest thing for him is he needs to stay healthy. Last year was his opportunity to go and really show that he belonged in the big leagues instead of in the minors, and he got a concussion, he got a knee injury, he got an ankle injury, and he just could never stay on the field, and then his numbers weren't very good. So basically, he needs to show that he can hit consistently in AAA in order to take the job from these two guys, like you mentioned, that don't belong starting in left field for a major league team that's trying to contend. I mean, if it were me, I would just give him the job right now, at least as the left-handed batting side of the platoon, because I think he's better than Carrera. Is there anyone else on the fringes of the roster, maybe a prospect or just someone you like and think might play a role on this team at some point this season that people might not be thinking a whole lot about right now? Uh, not on the offensive side so much. I mean, people like to talk about Rowdy Tellez, but I don't think he's the type of guy to supplant even Justin Smoke. But in the bullpen where there's a lot of turnover and names sort of come out of nowhere, when I was down in spring, I got to see this guy named Tim Meza. And this guy's throwing 98 from the left side with a 90-mile-an-hour slider occasionally. And he can't throw strikes yet very well, which is kind of a problem. Mm-hmm. But this bullpen is shaky. You know, J.P. Howell is the number one lefty, and he's maybe good. We don't really know. So a guy like that who can come up and be an impact guy potentially, I could see him really being a big piece in the second half of the season. Just as a, a last question before we get to our record prediction, which you will not be able to avoid, we did talk about the rotation, and you highlighted the uh, the five names, and there's the very clear five-man rotation. But as I think we all understand by now, a team that hopes to contend almost always, pretty much every single time, needs more than five major league starters over the course of a season. So who is who is the depth behind, let's say, Liriano? If he's the fifth guy, who are the other guys the Blue Jays could or would feel comfortable counting on? Well, this is really a tough question. I don't know that there's an answer to that right now. I mean, I guess the answers would be Mike Bolsinger and Matt Latos, but I don't even know if they can be kept going into the season. Bolsinger's out of options, and Latos has a minor league deal probably with an opt-out. The thought was that it might be Joe Biagini, that they would send him to AAA and stretch him out because he was a starter in the minors and showed he could get major league hitters out, but he's going to be in the bullpen. So there actually is no sixth starter right now, which is something of a problem. That seems like it's a major problem. Well, it seems like it could become a major problem, but you know, you could always pull one of those, I guess, Cubs seasons and just use the five starters all season. <laughs> 2005 White Sox. You never know that you need depth. You'll just almost certainly need depth. But it's, <laughs> why save for retirement when you could die at 53? Yeah, well, the Jays actually last year had that kind of season. They really only needed two starts, which they didn't really need. They just chose to use Drew Hutchison twice. 
Other than that, it was their entire five-man rotation, and then they added Liriano. No one else made a start. So they kind of need that to happen again. I guess one last one before the prediction. Troy Tulowitzki has been going by war, basically an average player over the last couple seasons. He's missed some time, of course, but he's Troy Tulowitzki, so he always misses time. <laughs> but, you know, he's hit about league average, which is fine for a shortstop who's still a good fielder. Like, he's still a, a useful player, but is that... Basically, your hope for him is that he just stays on the field and produces at a roughly average or a little bit better level? Or do you still harbor some expectation that maybe he could have another all-star season? Like I know after he came back from the quad injury midway through last year, he hit better down the stretch. I don't know whether that means anything or not, but are there still high hopes or do you just think of him as a dependable when he's playing kind of guy? Well, I think that those things when he comes back after an injury and then he's healthy and he hits well, you're like, oh, it's still there. It's still there. And then yeah. it's probably not. <laughs> you know, he's he's getting a little older now. And like you said, he's always hurt. So even if he gets the good one healthy quote, he's not really healthy ever. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's probably this, I, you know, a, a slightly above average hitter who will hit some home runs and play good defense. But he's not ever going to be what he was when he was in Colorado. Mm-hmm. All right, so we will ask for that prediction now. Can you give us a win total for the 2017 Blue Jays? Before I do that, I have to say, I think that the Blue Jays have got to be one of the hardest teams to do that for this year. Uh There's so much up and down potential with the rotation, the bullpen's garbage, but I'm still going to go positive. They're going to, well, positive-ish. They're going to win 87 games and be a fight for the wild card. All right, that is pretty positive. Okay. You can follow Josh on Twitter at Joshua Housem, and you can find him and read him at Baseball Prospectus Toronto. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. Thank you. And we will be right back with Susan Slusser of the San Francisco Chronicle to talk about the Oakland A's. You lost your serve. You lost your swing. You thought you'd hurt of everything. Hell no. All right, so we are back to talk about the Oakland A's with Susan Slusser, longtime A's beat writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. Hi, Susan. Hello, how are you guys? Doing all right. And this is Billy Bean's 20th season, I think, running the Oakland A's. And I think he has just come off his first two 90 loss seasons of that entire tenure. And we'll ask you at the end of this episode for a win total prediction, and we'll see whether you think they're going to make it a third straight season. But in the past, when the A's have gone through a lull, it had a purpose behind it. It was sort of a rebuild. They traded veterans and they stockpiled young guys and they kind of intended to be bad for a little while, not maybe as dramatically as the Cubs or the Astros did over the past few years, but to a lesser extent. Is this current lull planned, do you think? Was this a scheme that Bean sketched out five years ago and said, okay, we're we're going to be bad in 2015 and 16 and maybe 17, and then we're going to come out on the other side much stronger? Or did this just happen? Well, there are two things about this. First of all, I think it was 
but planned is maybe a strong word because I don't think gays ever planned to be certainly a non-contender. They like to try to contend however they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you saw Inkling starting with the suspicious trade. I think they were going for it that year. The, and that's the, obviously the last year they, they were in the playoffs in 2014. Yeah. And I think that they were going for it because they realized their window was kind of short. And the, that was followed, of course, in the offseason with the Josh Donaldson trade, which you know, was had its own set of reasoning, but part of that was they knew they weren't going to be able to afford him in at least two years beyond that. So, yeah, they've been grooming this young crop of infielders that is up and coming. Ryan Healy is already playing for the A's at the big league level. They're expecting Matt Chapman, Franklin Breda, came in Donaldson deal, guys like that. I think that's what they see as sort of their next wave, along with this very good young starting pitching staff that they're putting together. So what is different about this now is that this is actually more planned. I think in previous years when the A's have taken a step back and sort of retrenched, they can't help themselves. They sort of always make a couple moves more that make them a little bit better than maybe expected in the hopes of trying to contend, never fully quite pulling off a full rebuild. I think they see this as much more of a rebuild than than what they've done in the past. You mentioned the young pitching staff, and I think that if if it's possible to be optimistic about this current A's team at all, at all begins and ends with the pitching staff. This question is going to be entirely too broad because there are too many names, but what is your level of optimism or, if not optimism, pessimism, I guess, in a group that, that numbers at least six deep in seemingly major league quality starters, even behind Sonny Gray? Yeah, I think that this is an area of strength for the A's, potentially. You know, you never quite know with young guys. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. But the A's saw so many encouraging things from some of their young guys last year. Kendall Graveman obviously really turned things around for a very long stretch and looks like a potential sort of a 2-3 type major league starter. Sean Mania was excellent for long stretches. Jarrell Cotton came up and was really superb in a, in a short span, so they feel very good about those guys. Uh, as Sonny Gray goes, really, uh, the A's tend to go, and you know it's unclear kind of what their hopes are for him this year. Uh, of course, they would like to see him bounce back to the all-star level, Sonny Gray, but last year was such a strange, strange year, and he never got on track. If he is at all good, I think the A's staff is actually you know better than a lot of people expect, but Jesse Hahn has looked Terrific this spring. He's in the mix for the fifth starter spot. Frankie Montas came over in that same trade that got the A's Jarrell Cotton, the Josh Reddick, Rich Hill trade. He looks like he potentially could be a very nice starter for the A's down the road. So you're right. They've, they've got a very deep well of young starting pitching that they could potentially be looking at. And this winter was marked by a lot of off-the-field developments. It was changes in ownership, changes in the CBA that affected the A's and their revenue sharing and potential progress towards some sort of privately funded stadium. So could you catch people up on the main implications and to what extent did that dictate the moves the A's made or didn't make this offseason? Well, I think the A's had a feeling that something was a, was a little bit afoot with their revenue sharing. Um, the Players Association and the, especially the other owners, including the owners across the Bay who were putting into revenue sharing about what the A's were taking out. And I think there was a, there was a little bit of uh, upset there. <laughs> so they're losing about 35 to $40 million in total over the stretch of about four years it's being spaced out. But, you know, that's for a team that's already a low payroll team. You're talking about whacking out maybe 
ten million dollars from their payroll this year. And I think that was a little bit reflected in some of the things they did. Now they were actually in some serious talks at at some point with Edwin Encarnacion. A little bit of a surprise given the fact that they are losing a chunk of their revenue. But for the most part they wound up not doing a ton, you know, they signed some sort of secondary free agent. But I think the other way that losing that revenue sharing has changed the A's is they brought in a new team president. And usually we don't talk a lot about team presidents, right? It's the GMs and the, the mm-hmm. team president source, of, you know, the CEO, Epstein, kind of prime guy. They brought in a new business team president, and his name Dave Cavill. He is known in the Bay Area for getting the San Jose Earthquakes a very, very nice soccer stadium. And he's taken over the stadium, which is really serious about it, and says the A's will wind up with a stadium site sometime this year. They will identify a stadium site. That has brought a whole level of excitement, I think, in the Bay Area about the A's, especially after two bad seasons and a lot of, you know, what is going on with the stadium. I think there really is a level of interest that we have not seen in the team, especially off the field. And he's brought in a lot of fun other ideas. He's having office hours every week. He meets with fans, listens to ideas. He's even implemented some of them. He's listening to players' ideas and concerns and taking action. I, th- I think the A's are really, you know, they're going to have food trucks up by the stadium and better concessions and you know, more infant changing stations and all sorts of stuff. I think everybody really likes this is the sort of thing we have not seen from the A's for a long time. Now, it might just be good PR. Some of it might be lip service, but we haven't even seen that for a very, very long time. So mm-hmm. uh, if nothing else, I was going to ask you what the fan suggestions were that were taken. Maybe you just named a few, but that can be dangerous because fans have some terrible suggestions sometimes. <laughs> there was one that I thought was um, hilarious and like crazy, and it turns out it's not crazy. A guy su- suggested a floating stadium in the bay, and I thought, oh, gosh, what a, you know, that is bothering this poor Dave Cavill. It turns out that, that that has actually been done before. People have built floating stadiums, so it's not, and one of the issues with some of the sites have looked at is, you know, their harbor sites, and there's a lot of really heavy toxic cleanup that's involved. You don't, wouldn't have to do that with a floating stadium, so I kind of like it. Float it on over right near Paxwell Park and you could have sort of like home trips and road trips at the same time you just kind of take it on semester at sea i guess one one element of the a's from last year that wouldn't look good in any stadium would be the the team defense that was maybe the most crippling weakness on the team statistically i mean it's kind of a pick there are a lot of weaknesses but Looking at the unit right now, moving forward again, the team kind of built around the pitching staff, but do you think that this defensive unit is going to be able to support that pitching staff any better than last year? And if so, who are sort of the keys to how this whole defensive unit is going to work? I am not convinced it's much better. In fact, I was talking to an American League scout about this today, and he said he thinks the A's probably, again, will be at the bottom defensively. I mean, you start with the outfield where um, they could be a little bit better, in center, but not a, you know, Rajay Davis can play center, but he is not a premier center fielder. Chris Davis certainly is not among the best left fielders in the game. And then it's going to be a platoon and right of Matt Joyce and Mark Canna. Bob Melvin today said that the A's are also going to be playing Canna some in center, which signals to me that they very <laughs> might well be at four outfielders on the OPJ roster. 
and none of them are necessarily defensive standouts. So up the middle, you know, you go back, you've got Davis in center field, and then Jed Lowry at second base, Marcus Simeon at first stop. They, they've definitely got some weaknesses. Now, Trevor Pluth is better than um, at third than certainly what they got last year. And Yonder Alonso, when he's in there, is a really, really a fun defensive first baseman. And he, he might be a saving grace for the A's in field. But I don't know how long he'll be with the team. I think the A's might look to trade him at some point just because they seem like that's a position where they have a lot of overlap and he's the guy making the most money. I guess I should get questions about other starting pitchers out of the way before Jeff gets to the Andrew Triggs portion <laughs> of the podcast. So can you give us an update on Sonny Gray, who is – Perhaps the best pitcher on the A's, certainly the best known pitcher on the A's, but coming off a disappointing season. Well, you know, it's been already even a little bit of a strange spring for Sonny. He he was not very good in his outing yesterday. He gave up five hits, seven runs, he walked four. And he was really looking forward to pitching for the Team USA and the WBC and then was not allowed to go for insurance reasons. They, the WBC could not get insurance on him because of his deal since last year. And I, I think that, you know, kind of bugged him a little bit. So there are a few players I kind of believe in as much as Sonny Gray. His track record is so good. He's like, you know, so intense and he's such a competitor. But the A's really need him to get off to a good start and sustain it because last year was, you know, it was just dreadful for him, and he never got out. His confidence seemed shaken. He, he never has gone through anything like that in his career. And as I said earlier, really, if Sonny Gray goes, the rest of the pitching staff tends to go. So uh, Kendall Graveman kind of turned into the staff ace toward the end of last year, and, and he can carry that load. But, you know, for the A's to be a better than 500 team, they need Sonny Gray to be Sonny Gray. Now, the, the flip side of that is if Sonny Gray is, is good and the A's aren't anywhere near in contention, the A's probably trade him at midseason, so that's a little bit of a pick maybe if you're an A's fan. Well, the good news is there's a ready replacement in one Andrew Triggs. That's where this is always going to go. <laughs> Triggs, you know, I mean, people don't have any reason to really know who Triggs is. I was looking up the A's last year were 2-22 and 22 in games in which Triggs pitched, so he was an easy pitcher to ignore on a team that was easy to ignore, but... Toward the end of the season, he did make five starts, one of them injury abbreviated. Over those five starts, he threw 22.2 innings with one walk and 21 strikeouts. He was throwing a decent fastball, uh, lots of cutters, another slider. He's got a changeup in there. He looks like they've discovered a starting pitcher who never started before, before he was claimed off waivers from the Orioles. So what is Andrew Triggs's sort of standing, given that Jesse Hahn seems to be back, and there are already so many people competing for this rotation spot? Well, you know, going into the spring, I would have told you that Triggs was the favorite for that fifth spot. I mean, partly because the A's didn't know what they were going to get out of Jesse Hahn, who was all over the map last year. But um, the one thing I can tell you that makes me think Triggs is a great option. No, I mean, first of all, those numbers are, are very nice that you're reeling off. Um, but the catchers love them. The catchers absolutely, if, I think, I don't want to speak for them, but there, there are times certainly where I've heard from the catchers, like if, if Triggs was the fifth starter, they'd be more than happy with that. They really think highly of him. And the coaching staff does too. This is a guy who last year had eight different stints with the team. Eight. That's a team record. <laughs> so he was the one, he was the yo-yo, right? Going back and forth. He would come up, sit, not not ever get into Nashville, which was also crazy because that's where he's from. So we'd go back and li he lived at his parents' house, big league, living at home. So like, all right, I guess I just go back to my parents' house. But he handled it all beautifully, and he really did turn in some nice numbers. He looked 
you're right, like out of nowhere, they just stumbled over this, this guy who might wind up being their fifth starter and, and could be a pretty good one. Among other discoveries, but, sort of, the, uh, the A's, if they have a star on this team, it's Sonny Gray if he is healthy. And then if, if not Sonny Gray, maybe it's Sean Manaya. You look at the group of position players, and Simeon doesn't really seem like he has a lot of star potential. You touched on Davis's drawbacks. Ryan Healy is going to DH. If there's one guy, it's Matt Joyce. And Matt Joyce is not a new name. He's not even particularly young. But he had what seemed like a, a pretty legitimate breakout last year with the with the Pirates after sort of bottoming out the year before with, with the Angels. So have you had much of an opportunity to talk to Joyce about sort of the, the new approach he's taken to the plate? Because when I look at video of him, it's, I swear it's almost indistinguishable from Adrian Gonzalez when he's in the box. Yeah, um, it's interesting you say that. After he had that disastrous tip with the Angels, he went to a couple of different hitting coaches and wound up uh, working really extensively with Bobby Tewksbury, who also works with Josh Donaldson and then just worked with many others. And he's, you know, he's a real sort of swing path guy. And his big thing is your swing should be efficient. You're trying to hit a baseball and you know, it's working on getting it. <laughs> it sounds kind of silly, but his whole thing is the pitcher is throwing at you from the middle of the field. You need to like focus your swing on where the pitcher is throwing it from, which of course, but that winds up not actually happening. If you watch a guy in the box, they're not necessarily doing that. So it's hitting the ball back up the middle and, and making sure swing path and efficiency and all of that. And, and, you know, some guys just really take to a few different things a different hitting coach might put in their head, and that really clicked for Matt Joyce. Something working with Bobby Tewksbury really, really clicked. And he had a, you know, those numbers with, with Pittsburgh were pretty nice, and he finished up strong. Joe Madden was telling me the other day that, you know, Matt Joyce is one of his favorite guys he's ever had, but his thing with the Rays was he was come out of the gate hot and have a big first half and then really tail off in the second half. He said last year with Pittsburgh when, when Chicago was bombed, he was playing as well or even better in the second half. So uh, he thinks he has made a real nice pickup. And, and I agree. Uh, among the A's flaws last year, and, and we've already touched on a few of them, but their on-base percentage was dreadful. I mean, this is a money ball team. They've been last in the league and on base percentage a couple of couple of years now, but last year was especially bad. They just don't walk. Matt Joyce is, is a guy who could certainly help in that aspect. And, um, you know, he's going to be hitting up near the top of the lineup, and I almost like him not even as a platoon guy. He, he's one of your right. He's one of their better players. Mm-hmm. It's only been a few years since the A's were reputed to have maybe the best clubhouse in baseball and people were writing about how they did it and whether it was planned or it just happened and whether it was responsible for their surprising success at the time. And it seems, at least from afar, as if it's gone in the other direction. Of course, there was the Billy Butler, Denny Valencia dust-up last year. I don't know to what extent that was representative of the clubhouse or the season as a whole, but whatever that magic was that they seemed to have, did that disappear as quickly as it appeared and do you have any theories for how that happened yes i do they did they had a wonderful clubhouse they were the kind of the famous one of those johnny gomes sort of impact kind of teams with the 2012 team coming out of nowhere with gomes and carried that through i think it started with the cespedes trade i think the cespedes trade kind of took the wind out of the lineup we saw that they just collapsed the rest of that the way and then that off season the A's almost well they did they did do too much I think they they overreacted in some respects they made nine deals nine so 
everybody comes into the clubhouse the next year, it's a completely different team. And they've had a very, very good team and a very close team for three years, and suddenly almost everybody's gone. So I think that impacted teams and then there, the team. And then there, was, there were certainly a few people that came in that weren't quite uh, a fit. You know, just, and the A's have said that when they moved them, you know, but they're being one of them, not quite a fit. Brett Laurie, not quite a fit. Danny Valencia, not quite a fit. So they whiffed a little bit on, on some of those additions that they made. The Butler thing never made sense and he never quite seemed to fit in. And I, I think that there were, there's some, there were questions about his work habits. Certainly his numbers weren't what people thought they should be or what he wanted. So, you know, that was all, uh, that was sort of a, bad, bad signing that, that had an impact beyond just Butler's numbers. Mm-hmm. And related to that, there was that Jason Stark story recently at ESPN about how baseball players haven't been outspoken politically for the most part compared to most people, compared to other athletes. And Sean Doolittle's sort of an exception to that, at least on Twitter. How is that received in the clubhouse does anyone care does anyone mind is it something that comes up or is it just something he says on his own time and no one seems to mind well i mean sean is like one of the clubhouse leaders so certainly nobody minds and that's you know what you're getting that with sean and he's also their union rep so i think they all kind of know that you know he's very active sort of politically and in the mm-hmm. ball world um, we just, the, the Chronicle just today has a, a front page story on the Bay Area athletes involved in sort of the political scene because so many of the Warriors have been active politically and Steve Kerr has been and obviously Colin Kaepernick. Mm-hmm. And, and do, I talked to both Doolittle and Ryan Matson, who are um, sort of on opposite sides, you might say, politically. Ryan Matson is very conservative and he, he calls, calls himself a constitutional conservative. And he's been a, a little bit outspoken. But, you know, this is a team in the Bay Area where I think that, that maybe uh, certainly in the fan base, for the most part, of course, you know, in these, this day and age, you can never say one of it's, but there's a, there is a pretty big split. But in the Bay Area, Doolittle sort of, you know, a lot of his more liberal causes are going to be more popular in the Bay Area. I think Madsen did mm-hmm. get a little bit of flack last year when he was uh, talking about some conservative-type messages in USA Today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he said it wasn't really that bad, and he was surprised by the number of fans that said, hey, man, I'm right there with you politically. So um, I think it's it's all fairly gentle. I don't think that there's any – certainly there's no ill will. I mean, those two, those two guys are in the, the bullpen, and they're good friends. So – it's actually kind of nice to see guys that can have different political views and they're getting along just fine and they feel free to express them. This sort of last question is not at all as relevant as the clubhouse dynamic or political views, but I got to ask, you've been around long enough that you saw Adam Rosales the first time. Adam Rosales, when he was with the A's, he batted about 612 times over the course of a few years and he was exactly how you picture Adam Rosales. Now, you didn't get to watch Adam Rosales with the A's last year. You will get to this year. But in case anyone was unaware, last year Adam Rosales slugged 495. He struck out like he's Chris Carter. He walked like he's Chris Carter. He essentially played like Chris Carter as sort of a semi-regular with the Padres. Obviously, when you're talking about a backup, especially a 33-year-old backup, that's it's not going to be big news and, and numbers can bounce around. But it looks like, statistically, Adam Rosales completely changed what he was doing at the plate, and he turned himself into the most improbable slugger maybe in the National League. So what are the A's actually looking for out of Rosales, given the sort of wealth of mediocre, I guess, somewhat middle infielders they have on the roster? What is Adam Rosales supposed to be? 
Well, I think that number one thing is they're not looking for him uh, to be a massive offensive contributor, like the, like the offensive secondary. The fact he plays multiple positions, including shortstop, was the key. And maybe even more than anything, after this run of two years of having kind of rough clubhouse dynamics, they knew what they were getting, and he's a fantastic clubhouse guy, and he's a hard worker. They've got all these very young infielders. I think they want some good influences. They knew a lot of that, They and they have said very openly when they brought back Rajay Davis, when they brought back Rosales, when they brought back Santiago Casilla, they were doing so in part because they know them and they know they are good clubhouse guys and ones that will sort of help set a nice tone for a young clubhouse. So, um, you know, Joyce and, and Trevor Plouffe also come in with, with very good reputations. So that's something the A's were, were focusing on. So, you know, I think they'd, they'd certainly be happy if Rosales hits a couple homers off the bench. That would be great. <laughs> but really, de- defensively, I think it's what their, their concern is. And I don't think they're going to mind strikeouts because, really, this is not the on-base money ball A's anymore anyway. All right. Well, can we close with a win total prediction? Do yeah. you have a number in mind? I'm always a little bit um, optimistic, especially during spring training. But I think they will be a better than 500 team, and I think might even surprise a little bit. You know, might might put on a little bit of pressure in the second half if they if they keep Sunny Gray and some of their other more veteran guys, and they get what they expect from their young pitchers. So, I will be uh, cautiously optimistic for them, and I will say 82 wins. Jeff, you said you were uh, somewhat optimistic yourself, right? Yeah, I look at this roster, and I think I'm a sucker for the young pitching staff, and I'm the biggest Andrew Triggs fan in the world, but I think there's enough. I don't know how bad the defense is going to be, but I can I can see one of those fringe wildcard contenders here if Sean Doolittle especially stays healthy. All right. Well, you can find Susan on Twitter at Susan Slusser. You can read her in the San Francisco Chronicle and sfgate.com. Susan, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Uh, thanks, fellas. Thank you very much. All right, that's it for this week. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include David R. Woody, Dan McKinley, Nick Graham, Doug Graham, and Craig Minami. Thank you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Keep your questions coming via email at podcast at fangraphs.com and via the Patreon messaging system. Jeff emailed me yesterday, and the email just said, Quote, the podcast gets so much email. And it's true, but it's almost all really fun email, so keep it coming. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance this week. He's been a big help. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll be back next week, and our next preview episode will be the Mariners and the Rockies. Talk to you then. Money to spend tonight.